0: Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish, and is intended for mature audiences.
1: Coming up on this episode of Dead Bodies. Basically, I was just Johnny on the spot. I was the only guy in Australia with a cadaver recovery dog. The backpacker murders had come up, so got hired to go down and clear the area of the Langlo Forest for them. And on the second day I got an alert on my dog that so the dog had picked up odour and he ran over to a massive big rock and then I heard him say our dog handlers located the grave site for Joanna Waters.
0: Goodness gracious, one,
1: one of, one the, of the, the English girls. English yeah. girls
2: yeah. Yeah. Hi Dee Dee, you've lied. What? You've lied. Did I? Yeah, because in the last episode, for people that are binging episodes, yes. you said you were going to tell a story, now you've decided against it.
0: Oh, uh, well, that was that's the Mornington monster, John Sharp, and basically I just decided... He's a piece of shit and I don't want to talk about him. And I actually went – I went and – and I do know the story well. The only thing I do want to mention – and by all means, go and Google him. John Sharp with an E on the end. The Mornington monster killed his wife and daughter and unborn baby. Mm. Um, is that I knew a cop who worked on the case and he – Look, I was told that when they, you know, they spray the luminol around so they can see where blood has yes. been, that they did that on the back veranda. And I was told that he had cut up their bodies mm. and put them into a, um, a wood chipper. Whoa. And so when they sprayed the luminol, that the back veranda of the house, up like a Christmas tree. That was their exact words. Oh. Um, but reading about it, other things say that he cut them up with a, a chainsaw. Yeah, but either yeah. way, um, I'll let you look him up. That's probably all. I just I did say that I was going to do. We it, are not giving
2: mind. him any more breathing space. No, none, okay. not at
0: all. I tell you what, we are going. Oh, how hey, was your holiday, by the way?
2: My holiday was fabulous. Oh, you
0: lucky girl. I Where'd know. you go?
2: I went to Europe. For those who, it doesn't seem like I've gone on a holiday because people are just listening to podcasts, but I have because we don't record all of these all at once. No. Um, but it was good, but we'll talk about it a bit later because oh. it's going to lead into my story.
0: You didn't see a dead body on your holiday, No, did I didn't, you? but the
2: whole time I was wishing I did so I could come back and tell you about a dead overseas body, but I did not. But <sighs> my story today has something to do with it, but we are going to talk about feedback, which is
0: terrifying. Well, it is it is scary, but
2: then again, it's not. It's actually been lovely. Why are you... don't go all tense? Because sure when right. I was a kid, I never wanted birthday parties and I still don't want birthday parties because I have this fear that no one's going to turn up. And that's oh. exactly how I felt about this podcast when we launched it, that just we were going to put it out into the ether and then people were just not going to like it. Would hate us. Yeah. They
0: might still hate us, but there's a few who don't. Which is nice. There's some that so don't we're, we're and the they've pod-
2: written in. With the podcast
0: that people don't mind. <laughs> yeah. No, they do. Some people do mind. We're, look, can we just make one point? We're not laughing at anyone dying. We're not. But by the same token, don't tell me not to laugh. I know I laugh too much. It is one of my, what I consider to be one yes, of my Yes, I fails. know, but, and we're
2: always going to have haters and I know like F the haters and all, but mm. oh, I just... For those of you who have stayed with us throughout the episodes, thank you because you thank get you. where we're at, thank and you, you know we're not laughing at death. But we have to—you have to laugh at death occasionally. Yes, but they're—they're—they're
0: well, they're, they're mixed somehow, and we're not laughing at people's misfortunes. No, we're not. Um, so let's look at some of the feedback that we've had through our Facebook page, our Twitter page. Our I feel Instagram, awkward reading this out. Like, I
2: feel awkward reading out people praising us. It well, makes don't me feel maybe weird. skip the praise part. then. Okay, I've got to find. Just Sorry, I'm just going to spool through all the great feedback. It just goes for so long to find the part where people talk about dead bodies. Excuse me while I do that. Wow, is there room
0: in the studio for that head?
2: (laughs) So from Annie on our Facebook page, she wrote in, she said, In 1974, I lost my dad. I was 18 and my younger sister was 13. Now, her mum wanted an open coffin at the funeral. So as the service was about to commence, the undertaker came up and said uh, to her mum, Shall we close the coffin now? Mm -hmm. At that point, her younger sister covered her ears and put her head down immediately. And the service started. And it was a very sad day for all of them, obviously, she says. Now... Years later, while they were all talking about this, she asked her sister why she covered her ears and sort of, you know, got scared in that moment. Yeah. And she said she did it because she didn't want to hear The Undertaker banging nails into the coffin. Oh. She said, I have visions now of that day and I have a quiet chuckle to myself. So a big thanks to you girls for your podcast. and looking forward to many more.
0: How cute. Do they... Because there's a, that expression, it's the final nail in the coffin. Do oh, they that's actually, a good point. Do they, the, the lovely, glossy, shiny ones, do they nail them shut?
2: No. They just
0: cost you $30,000 and then you chuck them in the ground. And it's just a, a flappy lid. Because you had
2: that story about the lady that fell out. So there must be just like an opening lid. I think it's Some just class? so heavy and there's never really a reason to lock them because you're burying them. Or burning them. Can you
0: make sure my one has left like just a little, just in case there's a what? mistake and I've been buried alive? What? Don't they bury people with bells so they can ring a bell if they? Um, Who's
2: going to hear you ringing a bell when you're six feet under well, in a bell crematorium? You would run a you are.
0: string. Out oh, no. to a bell and have the string in the coffin around you. I'm sure that's a someone somewhere does that, and they put a tie string around the finger so that if you are have inadvertently been buried alive, ding ding ding.
2: Okay, just
0: read um, your email out. Okay, this is an email. This is from Kerry. Uh, hi, girls. I've only just discovered your podcast, but share your fascination. Um, I wondered if you ladies, Kerry says some other nice things, because, um, but, but so much praise really will be boring for you. It's fantastic for us. But um, She says, I wonder if you ladies had explored the phenomenon of memento mori. Yes, Kerry, yes. Yes, this is good. I was going to bring this up, but we'll let Kerry do all the work. Back in Victorian days, she says, photography was in its infancy and involved a man hiding under a cloth and a box camera and staying still for a very long exposure time. Oh, I
2: remember this in like those older day movies where you see the man and then from under the cloak he's holding a light. Well, that's the photographer. No, but they –
0: well, what they used to do, I think, was the baby – to take a baby photo, the mum would sit in a chair. They would cover her with a dark cloth. The baby would sit there and she would be holding it, but you couldn't see it. You just sort of saw this lump that was the mother. Right. Um, Needless to say, it was very expensive and, as a general rule, saved for very – auspicious occasions. Hmm. But when a loved one passed away, the relatives wanted a photo to remember them. Keep in mind the Victorian era-, era did not have refrigeration. Hence, within a couple of days of the death, the loved one was dressed and posed frequently with family members and photographed oh, years ago when I was a young cadet journo. I was in a bookshop called The Arts Bookshop on High Street in Armadale, and I found this book, a plain black cover, and in the middle of the cover, just in small lettering, it said death.
2: I was about to say, did it say death photos? It
0: did. just said death. Yes. And I, it was about the size of a, a laptop computer and I sat there on the floor of that bookshop and looked through the whole thing and I wished I'd bought it because I went back actually later to buy it and it was gone. How much and it was
2: it? I remember. I
0: don't remember, but it was always like coffee table books in that bookshop. So it would have been expensive. It
2: reminds me of, you know, the castle death photos. <laughs> <laughs> How death. much they want for it? No.
0: 20 bucks. Tell me streaming. Yeah. Uh, Often babies and toddlers were posed with similar-aged siblings, holding them
2: up. Yes, in the book I looked at. Oh, holding them up. They're obviously alive.
0: In one of them, there was a boy with his twin. The twin's laid out and the twin is being made to pose with his dead brother. About seven years old he was. Anyway, back to Kerry. Uh, Photographers would also provide stands to support the deceased and many photos show the effects of rigor mortis. You look at their fingers and they're all stiff and stuff. Possibly the weirdest aspect of this service is that given the exposure time, soft subjects often became slightly blurry. However, the deceased obviously didn't move at all. And the end result is the person who looks most alive in many pics is usually the dead one. Freaky, says Kerry. Uh, there are some sites and links. We'll put those up on our um, Facebook page and our Twitter page, etc., etc. Um, and then Kerry says, oh, and love the theme music. Perfect. I I've re-
2: actually have read about these. I chose the these. theme music.
0: You did too. I Just can if anyone you. was wondering. You were driving home one day and you heard mm, it come on and I texted. Did. There it is. There and it is. And it felt death-like. For those who are interested, it's um, Amy Winehouse. Fade to, to Fade, Fade to Black. Fade to Black. Back to Black. There one or go. the other. Mm. Those Memento Mori pictures, I have seen debate about them because some people say that – the dead bodies aren't dead. Oh. And also on some of them they, because you know how they colorized photos by actually painting on the black and white photo, they actually oh, draw yeah. the eyes open when they're not really. Oh. What else have we got?
2: Do you want people to take photos of you when you're dead?
0: No, thank you. I don't look any good when I'm alive. Dead's going to be hot. not good.
2: <laughs> well, I've got a Europe what tan, a slight tinge of Europe tan. <laughs> I feel like I've come right back to life. I do. <laughs>
0: I'm so confused about your funeral I'm supposed okay. to do. I'm supposed to be
2: crying no, now. I'm supposed to be putting know. a spray tan on you. Email from Kim. Now, Kim has actually a job that I have pondered because it involves so much death. I would think. But she says, I'm actually quite fascinated by death and dying and I'm surrounded by it in my job as an aged carer in an aged care facility. In my job, I see dead bodies periodically. I'm not always with my residents when they die, nor do I necessarily see every resident afterward as the bodies are cleaned and prepared for viewing or transport by us and then taken away to whichever funeral home they have determined they have to go to. I have been with a few when they die, some shock me for how quickly they leave. Some amaze me for how long they can hang on. She says she's had someone die in her arms. Oh, Yeah. And on another shift, she said she had been checking on a resident as part of my rounds. I knew she was close, close to death and had no family with her at the time Aww. and found her to be deceased. It is quite surreal, but not shocking. And most of them look like they are just sleeping. I feel like if I make it to the aged care home, don't feel bad for me.
0: But it's terribly sad for someone to die with no one. And if you were with that person, you would want to, you know, at least let the person know they would mattered. And you would feel at that moment that their life had been like you didn't have anyone to tell.
2: Yeah, but if I get into the aged care home, I'm doing cartwheels. Are you? Yeah. Okay. I feel like I see so many people in my job that die in their twenties, thirties, forties, fifties. If I make it to like my eighties, nineties, mm. good for me.
0: I did volunteer work in an aged care home Why? for about six months. Why? Just to do it.
2: How old were you? And uh, not
0: only a couple of years ago. And it's you're some a really of them, good person. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> it was. I didn't. My voice wasn't loud enough. I thought in the end because they always oh. want to do like games and stuff, and they could just couldn't hear me. I've got quite a soft voice. Um,
2: <laughs> Meryl, Meryl, <laughs> it's a five. Mark it out on your sheet. Well, there were
0: two issues. One, I couldn't like talk about things that they were interested in. Like I didn't. I wanted to talk about you know Fleetwood Mac or something, but they all wanted to talk about Betty Grable, and I didn't know enough. Like we didn't have enough in common. But some of them, I, I actually became frightened in the end that I it because I would go once a week that the person would not be there the following week. And that then, then because of work, I had this big gap of a couple of months where I didn't go and I then was actually too scared to go back at all because I thought Wait, they'll so be Wait, so you
2: actually thought in your mind, I'm going to go volunteer in an aged care home yes. a couple of years ago and you went and did it? Yes, you're a very good person. Thank you. You're a better person than Thank I. It. I didn't but do it for that. My... I do, do you know
0: what? I actually I used to go home thinking that I was taking more from it than I was giving. Oh, see, that's such a do-gooder sentence as well. No, but it's – and I'm not it's that. Really I'm no... not that person. But you're a very
2: it, good person.
0: But if you do that, if you do something like that – and I bet you do stuff – and but but I would go home thinking it made me feel better about myself. Therefore I felt like I was taking something from it. Anyway, we you're lucky you
2: didn't come across my grandmother, <laughs> God rest her soul, Angelina Vella, who shanked a nurse with a knife <laughs> because she was constantly stealing fruit from the like the food hall oh. and she was hoarding it. And they came to her room to take the oranges like come the oranges going bad, Angelina, and give them back to us, and she shanked a nurse.
0: Wow, and then she
2: escaped one day too, and they found her like three blocks down, exhausted.
0: Amazing, right? It doesn't surprise me. Like you know, apple tree, etc. My bloodline, right? She goes
2: on to say, Kim on the email goes on to say, as part of our job, it's to prepare the body at the time of death. Fluids can pass out of the body, and the family don't need to see that. So I think she means cleaning up the body, Um, and that can obviously be distressing. They wash and dress the body. She says, we speak to them as we do our cares, as it helps us normalise something that is part of life, but still something that most people will never have to do. Mm. I actually see it as a privilege and one of the final things I can do to help a person I may have cared for for years. It's a final farewell and I get to leave in the knowledge that they are clean, dressed and dignified when they leave our facility. Oh, that's
0: it, a good person Kim, there. we that's need your Kim. contact
2: number so you can look after all our loved ones when they go to aged yeah. care. Because you do hear terrible aged care stories, but you know. She goes on to speak about that that she didn't see her first dead body in aged care. It was actually her mum who died when she was terminally ill with cancer that riddled her body for two years. She was surrounded by her family when she died. And I was the only person who was looking directly at her at her moment of death. I was holding her hand and she just stopped breathing. I remember waiting for her heart to start again, but it just didn't. Oh, isn't that terrible? Um, She says, I have no idea what you believe about the afterlife, which we spoke a little bit about with my colleague, Michael. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can tell you for certainty that the moment my mother passed from this place to the next on her journey, I could see her life leaving her and I felt it as literal vacancy. That's like what Michael
0: said. Yeah, switch. he, he felt knew the air in the room was different.
2: I could see when she went from being living, breathing person to a corpse. It was almost instantaneous. Wow. Yeah, my father had wanted to keep her in the house overnight. I feel he, like that would be me. I would yeah, want. Yeah, he to couldn't keep let it it go. her go. Yeah. Oh. But they had to convince him that it was best to have her taken away. Um, yeah. And she, that would be hard. Yeah. That would, it would be, be awful. hard to let go.
0: I know. Uh, this is from Alexi on our Facebook page. Uh, hey, ladies. Uh, praise, praise. Lovely, lovely. Uh, skipping over it. So really, really Turning really the
2: pages of all the praise. Can you hear me turning oh. the pages? Okay, we've arrived at the
0: Alexi, it's tiring how much stuff, nice things you've read. Are people um, going to hate this episode? <laughs>
2: Stay
0: with us. Okay. Uh, Alexi says, I found my neighbour dead. He died during the night. It has caused a great deal of death anxiety for me because he wasn't that old. He just didn't look after himself. It was horrifying. I could go on, but this is just a Facebook post. So we then replied to her, hi, Alexi, sorry that you had to experience that. It's especially sad when someone dies young. And Alexi came back to us and said, yeah, it was a bit crap. But glad I could advocate for him when the cops turned up and all that stuff happened. There is no dignity in death whatsoever. Mm. Um, now, here's an email that came in after the release of our most recent episode. And you did invite people uh, if they thought they could guess where you would hide a dead body. And don't think I didn't pick up on where you said something about drop the body down. Oh,
2: I, I do said, you know what? And I've thought about this, about my dead body spot, because I said I would go there... On my own and record if my thoughts about if it's definitely a good body spot. But now I've thought I can't ever say it on the podcast because what if an actual murderer uses that spot?
0: I'm not bailing you out. Oh. The cops come after you. Does the name Robert Avadia ring a bell to oh you, my Chanel? Lord. Please explain.
2: He's my colleague. He works at Channel 7 in Sydney. That's
0: right. He's written in. Yes, he has. Oh,
2: I thought you were going to... That's actually quite a relief because I thought maybe you were going to say that my dad had written in because he loves to give me feedback, (laughs) especially when he sees me on the news and I look tired. He'll message me and go, what time did you go to bed last night? Because you look tired on the news thought maybe I, he was going to give me podcast reviews. We need to – um,
0: remember when you filmed your dad? Uh, Papa Vella is one of my favourite people He's just on the strength of the video you filmed of him mm. listening to our first two episodes and he gives us feedback. Can we dig that up? Yeah, I've got it. That? Thank you. We're going to yeah. have that at some stage. Yeah. Um, okay. So Robert says <clears> – <throat> it's short. Okay. But there's a tone to it. Oh, and and I see his finger going and oh. pointing in your face while he says this. Oh. You're a smart girl, Vella, but if you think for a moment, I hope Robert's all right with me taking liberties with his tone of voice. I but think this so. Is how I think I it think would he'd be. appreciate it. Keep going. If you think for a moment you could outdo me in inverted commas making a problem disappear, you're kidding yourself. If you've chosen anywhere other than the ocean with zero accomplices, it's not good enough. Let's hope we never have to face off, Robert.
2: What's your response? Robert to that? is a hard-ass crime reporter, and he yep. has been in Sydney for a long time. So, is so he, he saying, challenging
0: you to a dead body hide-off?
2: What well, was he saying? The ocean.
0: Well, yes, and I did respond to him and say that's I think would be the most sensible place because all the little microbes break bodies down because I researched. No, I think the ocean is shit. No, the research, the ocean is good. You got but your shark. bodies
2: wash up on beaches all the time.
0: Yeah, but sharks get to the mi- and bodies mm. decompose in the ocean faster than anywhere else because of all the microbes.
2: Mm.
0: I'm backing him because he's got his dander up over your claims of having the perfect place and I reckon he thinks he's got a better place and I just wish I knew what one of them was.
2: Yeah, well, you can't judge mine because you don't know what it is. So get stuff to you, get stuff to Vardia. All right. Any more? One more. Okay. So then we've got Tom, who's utilised Instagram to message us. And And he's utilised He's utilised Instagram. Mm. I know, I'm such a professional. I'm always on the road with work in little old NZ, and your podcast recently has made those long journeys a blast. I wasn't meant to read that.
0: Can I just, I can't Mm. contain my excitement that we're being listened to On another continent. I know. That's fantastic. And hello to all of our friends in New Zealand.
2: I love crime podcasts. That's not weird, right? And this just adds another element of humour and joy to something that sometimes can be quite morbid. So thank you for making it more lively. You clearly enjoy it and that comes across. Keep them coming. Good on you, Tom. And on that note, keep the feedback coming. We love to read it. I always make Dee Dee read it first because she has access to the emails because it freaks me out. Right. All right, Dee Dee. You know I love dogs. We are not worthy of them in our lives because they are such magnificent creatures. Got one
0: golden retriever.
2: Got two and a surrogate at the moment, so three. Uh, Craig is on the line and he is an international award-winning, certified specialist dog trainer. Where were you when I was toilet training my dog? But you know, you're here and you specialise in cadaver dogs. Craig, thank you for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Um,
0: we've got so many questions, Craig. Starting with, um, what kind of dogs are best used as cadaver dogs?
1: For me, I always use Labradors and uh, my dogs that I've used for cadaver have always been Labradors and um, the people who do... Some of the best dogs in the world prefer Labradors.
2: Now, this is the question that I've always wondered. And when I've been at crime scenes and they've brought these dogs in, mm-hmm. how do you train a dog to know what a dead body smells like?
1: Okay. There's a, there's a couple of ways. It depends on your location, obviously, and the laws in your land. Mm-hmm. But um, here in Australia, um, because I did the first dogs in the country, we had to use what we call pseudo-corp scent, which is a manufactured scent that um, a massive um, chemical company in America uses. And there's three different types of corpse scent: corpse scent one, which is for freshly dead bodies or bodies under ice or snow with a slow decomposition rate. What? That's then there's corpse scent two, which is um, putrefied bodies and bodies that have decomposed, and also covers old skeletal remains, and then there's um, effervescent water scent for um, picking up bodies underwater because dogs can find bodies that are are drowned and underwater.
0: Oh, that was one of my questions. Can we get (coughs) to that? That's amazing. Um, What is it about – so how do the dogs know the difference between human remains and animal remains? What is it that's unique to a, a human decomposing body?
1: Okay, if, if you could imagine um, thinking about us, if I gave you a, a test and said, okay, Didi and Chanel, um, I'm going to ask you guys to go and tell me what's in this um, this um, casserole that's on the, on the oven. And you go over and you'd look and you'd go, some sort of meat and there's um, some vegetables and a dog would sit outside and go, boom, every ingredient that is in there including salt, pepper, and everything else.
0: So they can differentiate between the different
1: Absolutely. So every species has its own individual scent, Mm -hmm. and humans have their own individual scent as well, obviously.
2: And how far away can a body be for a dog to get a hint of a scent?
1: Depends on the environment that it's in, because obviously... um, you know, environments are very different. If it's a water environment, if it's a dry environment, um, different things happen to bodies under different environments. And also whether the soil is alkali or acid soils, it all makes a difference whether the body's buried or it's on top of the ground. If it's been left on top of the ground for a long period of time, then what will happen is the bones will just bleach out and um, a cadaver dog after many, many years won't see those bones as anything else's other than just part of the environment. But if they're covered by leaves or soil or anything like that, what ha- happens is uh, the, the bones express phosphorus and nitrogen, and that's how the dogs pick it up.
0: So you mentioned a moment ago that they can detect a body under the water. Now, how on earth does that work?
1: It's very, very simple mechanics, really. Um, a body going down in water is decomposing. Decomposed, decomposing bodies cause gas, gas is lighter than water so the gas rises to the top so basically what we could do is train our dog to identify decomposition odor which is what we do and then we put a, a, a plate down and teach it that every time it smells that scratch on the plate we put the plate in front of the boat we go across a lake or a lagoon or wherever the water body is as soon as the dog smells that smell it goes straight to the plate and scratches we come from three or four different angles when the dog gets that that odor we mark out that spot work out how fast the water's moving, how deep it is, and then they'll tell you where the body is.
2: Does it just blow your mind how intelligent these animals are? Because when you're telling me that story about the dog scratching the plate, I know dogs are smart. My dog can play dead. So I've taught of my dog it to can. do that. And of it course knows your how to dog do can play dead, He <laughs> it, it knows how to do that. Come so on. I know dogs are smart. But this is quite incredible.
1: Well, we train dogs to do all sorts of things. So, you know, we we train them to help our environment, so finding ants and, and all sorts of nasty things in our environment, including harmful chemicals. Um, so for me, I've seen them do amazing things all my working life, so I sort of expect it, but they still do blow your mind from time to time, no matter how much you think of them or or consider how awesome they are. From time to time, they still do extraordinary things that you could never imagine.
0: Craig, now you were the first person to train a cadaver dog in Australia and I gather on your first official search, you and your dog located a rather significant bone. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes, we were we were um, asked by Queensland Police and some people from the Queensland University to go and look for a, a person that they thought was missing on the Gold Coast. It was in the sewage, uh, opposite a sewage treatment plant, Works in a mangrove swamp and it was tidal and we went looking and we didn't find what we were looking for but my dog located a bone which was um, carbon dated by the university to be 300 to 1,000 years old. It was about a foot under, underground uh, in the tidal area and it, the, all as they could tell us was it was mammalian. So it was some sort of a mammal, most likely human.
0: Extraordinary. Mm. What did you think it was when it first was located? Did you realise that it was something that old?
1: No. Well, I, I was very green at that point. I'd only just trained my dog. I really had a lot of faith in that dog because when you're a dog handler, you, you have to have ultimate faith in your dog, otherwise you'd be no good at all. And um, I, I knew that I had something, but I didn't know what I had. I knew it wasn't a body because the reaction would have been much stronger. Um, but I held my ground and told the, um, the anthropologist that we were with, that I believed it was something significant that we needed to look at, and it took them two days to excavate it and find the bone. That was probably one of the oldest bones ever found by a dog anywhere in the world.
2: Now, I know you've done work with New South Wales Police as well, but just before we get into that story, just another question that's come to my mind. How many of these dogs are in existence in Australia, and does each police force have their own, or is it just a specialist group that is sent state to state?
1: Um, I couldn't tell you at the moment There's how many exactly. There'd probably be around a dozen, I'd say, um, and some police forces have a couple. Um, and usually what will happen is well, when I used to do cadaver recovery, the police forces used to hire me because I had the only ones in the country. So right. we, we used to fly into all the other states and go and do jobs for
2: them. Now, as I said, you were approached by the New South Wales Police yes. uh, for the infamous Backpacker Murder Investigations. Tell us about that.
1: The Backpacker Murders was Ivan Milat, and that was in 1993, and it was at uh, Belanglo State Forest. And um, at the time, we were pushing pretty hard because I also ran bloodhounds, and um, to get used by the police was very, very difficult. And um, Australia's Most Wanted, the TV show, came along and heard of, of my cadaver dog mm-hmm. and asked if they could do a story and basically I was just Johnny on the spot. I was the only guy in Australia with a cadaver recovery dog. The backpacker murders had come up and they really wanted to clear the area. So got hired to go down and clear the area of Belenglo Forest for them. I was there for two and a half weeks in the first stint and then another two and a half weeks in the second stint. And uh, the first stint, obviously the police are, are not silly and something new like that, they wanted to test whether we knew what we were doing, so... They put us out with a, a search team. I think I had uh, two officers on my team at the time, and they were starting to use GPS. 1993 was the first, uh, around the first time that they really plotted things with GPS.
0: Yeah, it was very early technology at that point, yes. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it
1: was. And uh, we were out in the forest, and they let me search around for uh, two days. And on the second day, I said to my, my uh, search officers, I've got an alert on my dog, and they said, what's that? And I showed them that the dog had picked up odour, and he ran over to a massive big rock, and he started to indicate there, and I pulled him out. And then I heard him say, search team one to base. Our dog handler's located the, um, the grave site for Joanna Waters.
0: Goodness gracious, one, of, one the of the English the girls. English yeah. girls yeah. yeah. Gee, and then were you then involved in, in searching for the other... Um, yes. Victims? Yeah.
1: yes, and uh, the the reason that I went home after two and a half weeks was they felt that we had done everything we could do, and that afternoon that they sent me home, I'd actually been out, they, they asked me to go out and search some areas that I thought would be relevant from the, the uh, information that we knew of how he used to place his bodies, and I was searching an area and I found a red glasses case with SS on it, Simone Schmidl. Mm. They knew was missing and uh, I got home. And the next morning I was dropping my, my child off to daycare when we lived up at Lansborough, and uh, heard on the news that they've located Simone Schmidtle's body and I knew I was going to be back at the Langlo and I was back that afternoon after going on the Ray Martin show. Can,
0: can the dogs detect um, items? I mean, you've just mentioned the glasses case. So they can also pick up on items that have been touched or, or held by the, the missing person it's
1: not 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 necessarily that way if you could imagine a cadaver dog and my cadaver dog at that time was purposely trained just for cadaver so okay. freshly dead decomposition and water recovery and what happens is if you start searching large areas like we were and we weren't having much success finding anything because there was only only seven bodies there and they'd already found four by the time we got there and um, what will happen is your dog will start to locate anything that's touched by humans. So we would find, you know, bits of knives and metal and, and um, bullet shells and all sorts of stuff. And whilst I was working my dog, my dog pointed out a red glasses case, which we knew they were looking for. Goodness gracious. Hmm.
0: Do they ever tire? Do they, how, how long in a stint can the dogs work?
1: Well, it depends on the dog. Um, my dog, he was a very... Um, very, very hard worker, so he would work and work and work. You'd have to be careful that he didn't drop from heat stroke because he'd just work himself into heat stroke. So it would depend on the day, you know, what sort of temperatures you have and what winds are happening and the terrain that you're dealing with and everything. But um, sometimes up to about 40 minutes for a search. And in 40 minutes, you can cover quite a bit of an area because what you're actually doing is um, you're doing open area search, so it's quite broad. And if there were, were a body chances are it'd be giving off quite a bit of odour. And it's such
2: an important job to find a body, not only to aid a police investigation, because we know obviously a body means that person is dead. They're not just off missing in another state or living another life, but finding bodies is really important for families, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And, and the thing that um, was probably one of our biggest lessons to learn was, as a dog handler, if you do find a body or you know parts of a body or whatever, you have to be excited for your dog and yourself because mm. you've done exactly what you needed to do but sometimes you have onlookers who are family or friends so you know you have to handle it very very delicately and um, also when you're searching you you can't make out that you're looking for a body because then you break their hope that they might find them alive you know Ooh. and you never really know until you find them
0: Craig what was the first time you saw a dead body
1: uh, I think I was probably about maybe about 12 years old um, I was I was raised in Brightley Sands, and I was down at Brightley Sands Bath, uh, bathing area above, and um, a gentleman died of heart attack right in front of me on the beach, and I, I called for an ambulance, and um, he turned purple and blue and died in front of me while the ambulance guys were coming down to him. Goodness gracious.
0: Mm. 12 years old.
1: Yeah. And what yeah, made sir. you want
0: to work in this kind of line of business?
1: I just wanted to use a search dog you know, and it was something Mm. that no one had done and I was trained by a really um, extraordinary guy from America who was the best at this and I just thought it would be really cool to be able to do it after getting the training so I just pushed for it and like I say I was Johnny on the spot when the backpacker murders come up which got me a, a spot at many many searches.
2: Well, it is a super cool job, crime and dogs. It's like my dream. It's
1: very <laughs> awesome.
2: It's very awesome, Craig. Absolutely it is. Craig, thank you so
0: much. That was incredibly interesting. And um, Craig has a website if you want to learn more about cadaver dogs and Craig Murray's specialist dog training. Go to dogschool.com.au. And uh, who's your favourite dog? Have you got a, is, is there one that's better than the rest?
1: I have three favourite dogs.
0: Yeah. Oh. What are their names?
1: Uh, well, three favourite breeds. Yeah, I, I have a blood bloodhound at the moment, who's a rescue bloodhound that we've only just got in the last couple of weeks. He's doing fantastic, and we call him Rough Justice.
0: <laughs> I knew they'd have crime <laughs> names. Yeah, go on.
1: <laughs> and um, I I have a Labrador who I use for retrieve trialing competition. Yeah, and her name is Glory, and she's a obviously a Labrador. So bloodhound is my number one Labrador.
0: Glory or Gory.
1: Glory I tried tried. I tried Yeah
0: (laughs) And the other one
1: (laughs) And um, I have a a Belgian Malinois Which is a a Working police type breed And um, His name is Sting
0: Yeah that's okay Police Sting Operation Craig an absolute pleasure We really appreciate your time Thank you so much
1: You're welcome Thanks for having me on
0: Dead Bodies is created by DD Dunleavy and Charnel Villa, and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at DeadBodiesPodcast at gmail.com.